and young welcome to i've made a huge mistake in a rest development podcast i am your host darren husted uh with me today i'm joined by two guests first of all matt batoyak hello and allison betty means Annyeong. <laughs> and we're going to be discussing the third episode of season one which is called bringing up buster quite appropriately Although, I think that title is meant to be, as with practically every single title of every episode of Rest of Development, slightly ironic. Because, of course, Lucille is trying to not bring up Buster. She's trying <laughs> to palm him off onto as many other people as possible. Now, this episode was written by Mitch Hurwitz, uh, with Richard Rosenstock. It's directed by, I think it's Joe Russo. Um, I know these first few episodes are all uh, are all directed by the Russo brothers. They did the pilot together and then they they alternate. Uh, but the co-writer on this, and I just I don't want to get too deep into this, but <laughs> I uh, I looked this up and it's Richard Rosenstock. Now he's a, he's a veteran writer, as were a lot of the writers who were on staff for the first season of Rest of Development. You know, he writes a few episodes of um, season one and a couple in season two, and then he he, he left to um, work on Big Bang Theory. Um, but before this, a decade earlier, he had created the TV show, and it was it was it was only on for one season called Flying Blind, and um, I was a huge fan of this show um, when it when it aired, which was like ninety two to ninety three, and um, it had uh, Corey Parker was the star, and it had Tia Leone and Clea Lewis as kind of like the main cast members and Clea Lewis went on to be the best friend on um, Ellen after her show went through a, a season two rebirth where it <laughs> completely got rid of most of the cast replaced them with you know Jeremy Piven and Clea Lewis and, and then changed completely almost as a show but we'll save that for our Ellen podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um which will be called these friends of mine for the first first kind of 13 episodes or so. <laughs> and then we're gonna change it completely yeah <laughs> yeah, uh, when one of us comes out. Um, now, I uh, I just mentioned that because I was just such a fan of Flying Blind, and I, I literally don't think anybody else in the world, other than maybe me and Tia Lo and his parents, probably love that show. I, uh, so they're, they're I, I've never people. heard of it. <laughs> if you can find it anywhere, watch it, because it is one of the... It's, the premise is that Corey Parker plays like a yuppie, and he meets Tia Leone, who's like this free spirit, kind of like hippie. And basically, it's almost the exact same as Dharma and Greg, oh. but like <laughs> two or three years before Dharma and Greg. But, you know, she's always like trying to make him do stuff, and he's always reluctant to do it. Uh, and therein lies the comedy. Oh. Um, first off, I'm going to ask both of you, um, did you watch Arrested Development uh, when it aired? In 2003, 2004, when it started. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Matt first. I watched a couple episodes. Uh, this was before the time of DVR, so everything was basically, if I wanted to see it when it wasn't on, I'd have to videotape it. And my VCR was very spotty at best. Uh, and as I discovered later when I was watching it, on, I came to it really on the DVDs, I noticed it's a show that, it, it does best on DVD or it does best in binging because there's so many jokes that could be lost from week to week. And I really think it was one of the first shows I saw that I really noticed that on where it was like, oh, this joke is carried over through the entire season. And that's that's kind of where I came to it was on DVD, not really on network television. And Alison, did you watch it while it was on the air? I did not. I was, I was in high school when that came out, so I, I didn't come to it until I was in college and a bunch of people had the DVDs of it in the dorm and we just 
hang out and just all day, you know, skip our classes and watch Arrested <laughs> Development. <laughs> I'm going to give you then the um, the summary that is uh, that comes with the DVD. Um, now, this episode went out on the uh, 11th of November, uh, one week after Top Banana went out, which was uh, episode two. As this season goes on, we'll find that Fox's airing of these episodes became slightly more erratic towards the end. <laughs> yes. That was also part of the reason why it was hard to watch when it was originally on. I mean, this came out, I, I was beyond the high school years when this came out, and so I had, like, the time to watch it, but... Like, trying to actually find when it was on was challenging in and of itself. Uh, Buster moves in with Michael after their mother kicks him out of their uh, of her penthouse, and a distraught George Michael realises he has to kiss a boy in the school play. And I think that's an accurate summation of the, the kind of main two plots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, I guess the A plot and the B plot could be... I think for this episode in particular, they could be swapped around, mm-hmm. uh, depending on whose position you want to take. But I think the A plot is Lucille and Buster and Michael... And, you know, Buster kind of, um, for the first of several times, this is something they'll come back to with Buster is he finds his independence and then he realizes he needs his mother again and he goes back to his mother. <laughs> and that becomes that becomes like a, a cycle that, that he he's, seems to be doomed to repeat. Um, and the B plot is George Michael, once again, his crush on his cousin, which leads him to, you know, uh, join the school play, the the school adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing, um, which he's only doing because maybe he's doing that, and maybe he's only doing it because of Steve Holt. Yeah. Uh, which of Steve course, Holt. I was saying, the introduction <laughs> of Steve Holt. Steve Holt! <laughs> yeah, Steve Holt, we meet here, and um, uh, Justin, um, I'm trying to remember his full name, Justin Grant Wade, he is, I mean, his character is basically nothing, but he does so much with just yelling Steve yeah. Holt every single time someone says Oh my says god, his it's name. amazing, it's amazing. <laughs> it, actually, when they tell him that he is Beatrice, he goes, You are my Beatrice. Beatrice! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what I noticed going back and watching this again is Steve Holt's wearing braces and I never remembered Steve Holt wearing braces in the other episodes um, so I don't know if that was just me not paying attention but did anybody else notice that? I didn't even I did see not. that yeah. I didn't even realise I don't want to go too far ahead but later on we'll, we'll realise that Steve Holt at this point is probably somewhere near the age of 20 or 21 because he's done his, <laughs> he's done his senior year at least three times yeah um, in the last episode and this one, they really go heavy on Tobias and the whole acting thing. Um, and we get the introduction of his, his running joke where he swaps genders. So later in the episode, he'll, he'll re- refer to Steve Holt. I wish I could say the same for Steve Holt, though. I don't know what the hell her problem is. And Michael is like, her? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I say that because I switched the parts. Um, you know, it's just something, it's just something that, um, they do with Tobias that just ends up becoming a signature thing where... You know, when he when he picks between genders, he always picks the female gender to define things <laughs> in situations <Yeah. laughs> where sometimes there's a there's a, a male counterpart he could have picked. And the running joke I think in this episode is probably one of my favourite running jokes, which is the cornballer. Yeah, and how, cornballer. <laughs> how everyone <laughs> keeps burning themselves. David Cross, David Cross, I would say, has the best reaction. When he basically kind of catches his breath yeah. and he can't breathe at how hot it is. Yeah. And, um, Am I touching yeah. something? <laughs> <laughs> I used to work as a chef. I'm in another field now, but all I could do every time they brought up the cornballer and started using it was it part of my mind was like, how does that thing work? And could I make cornballs? 
I wonder if I could. <laughs> like, it seems to be a, a corn disc that then is inflated inside of a wire mesh. I bet you I could do that. And I spent, I spent like a couple minutes like looking at it and breaking it down in my mind to the point where at the end of the episode where he has the tiny corn ball that he's mashing down, I was like, oh, you couldn't make that inflate. You're folding it over far too many times, George Michael. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Which is just. See, for me, it just gave me like, flashbacks of working in food service at a pizza parlor when I was younger and all the burns yes. that I sustained. <laughs> oh, yes. So many burns. My forearms still look terrible from years of working in restaurants. Oh, yeah. I did discover that if you have freckles and you burn yourself bad enough, they come off. That's terrifying. That I mean, I I think we should just start by tackling it where it begins, which is, funnily enough, with the um, the cornballer, and it also builds up a little bit of George Senior as kind of like a businessman who tries to diversify, obviously starting off with the banana stand yeah. and finishing up as, you know, a developer, <laughs> and in between, you know, he, he we get a, a cameo from Richard Simmons where George Senior, you know, they get into a fight, which, of course, when we see later on, you know, the device that had been marketed in Mexico, we we see that they just basically keep the exact same footage, but just have a more enthusiastic uh, narration over yeah. the top of it. <laughs> Soy loco por los balls! <laughs> <laughs> and this also starts something which will go on for the next few episodes, which is uh, Michael riding a bike. And like it's not a big thing. They don't really make that much of it. Obviously, here it's they're, they're framing it with it being like a Sunday bike ride with his son, um, and you know the, the kind of this relationship will kind of top and tail this episode. Uh, George Michael doesn't want to do the bike ride. Michael sees that as um, him pulling away for some reason and doesn't realize, which he will never realize, I think, because they never kind of <laughs> they never get this nailed down in the entire show. But uh, Michael does not realize that his son is in love with his cousin. And that is that's why he's pulling away. He's not pulling away from his father. He's pulling himself towards his cousin. And I like that they kind of they talk about the bike. And, and Michael is like, let's not blame the bike. It's the poor carpenter that blames his shoddy tools. for Ow! Ow! And then he burns himself yeah. on the cornballer. <laughs> and I just love how character will be talking about something and it will be immediately illustrated straight away. So he's talking about, you know, a poor <laughs> tools and straight away he burns himself. Yeah. Um, but I, for the rest of the episode, you know, um, Michael is, is going to employ his uh, brother to build George Michael a new bike. You know, which I think shows like their relationship and how he, you know, he's always trying to get close to his son. But they basically don't cross until the end of the episode again. Like they go off in separate paths as, a, mm -hmm. as the two plots separate. And um, we get a little bit of um, Lindsay's kind of spending and what and what is essentially kind of like a, t a tiny subplot that um, that basically works into the B plot, but doesn't really have its own story, which is just. You know, Lindsay <laughs> saying... I pay for it myself. With what? Company credit card. You're returning that. Get a job. Yeah. <laughs> I, think it's it's, I think it's funny because in this episode, Job and Lindsay, they had quite big plots in the previous episode with the with the fire sale and, and everything and uh, and with the letter. You know, they so last time they had really big stories and because this episode becomes more about Buster, they kind of just get little tiny counterpoints to what's going on with Buster. I think in that sense, the I do disagree a little bit with what you said at the beginning. I think that the episode really is about bringing up Buster because it's about 
the development of Buster as a person outside of his mother, in a way. I mean, even though he ends up going back to her in the end, yeah, he does, you know, he flies oh, yeah, too close he, to he the sun. He does have a little arc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, I do agree with that someone is bringing up Buster, but I think the person who isn't bringing up Buster is the person who should be bringing up Buster, which yeah. is his mother. Although, obviously, I, I, I think <laughs> as the show goes on, people would think that probably his mother should have stepped back a little bit at some point. Maybe um, a little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but most importantly, we get the start of what is the um, the biggest arc in the first season, which is the introduction of Marta, where the narrator tells us that Job has been having an on-again, off-again relationship with Marta, a Spanish-language soap opera star. I, I don't think we need to stretch out what happens with Job in this episode, because it's kind of just a, a few little short gags. But I love how kind of Job becomes untethered, um, you know, he, he, he kind of, he, he breaks up with Marta kind of on a whim and then he ends up, he's trying to get into the model home to live there. And then he ends up going to his mother and it's very rare that we get scenes between Job and Lucille. And I love, mm-hmm. I love him, um, waking her up by <laughs> singing cold as ice. You're as cold as ice, willing to sacrifice. Are you crazy? I'm a magician. I make my living with my hands. Cold as ice. I love, I love him reading a book on French 19th century erotica, just hanging out in the living room. Like, that's what Job does yes. for fun. Just read about, you know, French erotica. And then, yeah. Of course he does. Of course they have yeah. that book. Yeah. Well, that is, that, that's like a, lo- that's a great, like, kind of background like joke and this show is so good at background jokes the fully set table in the model home with the the turkey dinner is just amazing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's funny because job singing cold as ice calls back to the previous episode but actually i think the pilot where he said we need ice Uh, and obviously that is a setup for a joke which will pay off so far into the future it's quite crazy yeah um lucille is like You've got three days. Hey, if I can't find a horny immigrant by then, I don't deserve to stay here. <laughs> oh. And they they share this, like, little chuckle between them. Like, Lucille's like, you're right. <laughs> you yeah. don't. Which just, which just <laughs> illustrates the terribleness of Job and his mother. It's like, to such a degree, it's so wonderful to watch them yeah. be terrible people. And I think this is this yeah. is like one of the very few times in this, particularly in this first season, where we'll get this kind of interaction between those characters. Where, because as we as we know from uh, from the pilot, she doesn't really care for Job, um, but yeah. it kind of when they when it comes to immigrants, they share the same kind of um, abusive tendencies. So you know the, the kind of the treatment of Luz and Lupe is kind of mirrored by Job's treatment of Marta. So I think it's it's interesting that they're kind of mm-hmm. showing where he gets um, that from. Um, and I don't, I mean, obviously Job then ends up living at the office. Um, and um, <laughs> he, he says he, he sleeps in the boardroom. Yeah, I camped out in the boardroom last night. What with you kicking me out of your house. There are a few places left that you have that I can stay. Mm. Well, you can't stay here either. He's having this conversation in, like, the copy room with both his brothers um, because Michael is trying to get him to leave. But what 
What's really great about the scene is that when they walk in, he's in a bathrobe and he's just shredding things in the shredder. He's the first, it's a chain of paper clips. Then he puts a pencil in the shredder. Then I don't know where he got it, but he starts shredding slices of bread. <laughs> just, just random things that he's picked up around the office and he's just shredding away. Which I can understand because working near a shredder now, I find myself constantly wondering, like, what could I put in this thing? Can I shred this? <laughs> if I got caught shredding this because something went horribly wrong, could I justify it? <laughs> Which is really the, the key to whatever I want to shred is, if I got caught, could I justify it? Because if not, then I shouldn't shred it. <laughs> well, I'm sure Job does not yeah. care about that. <laughs> He's just like, I'm going to shred this bread. Yeah. I'm going to do it while Michael yeah. watches me. <laughs> and then um, I don't think we really figure out where he ends up, but I can only assume because in future episodes he's back with Marta that he returns to Marta. But we never actually find out where he's living at the end of the episode. <laughs> so that kind of just that's just the end of Job's story is he was he was shredding bread and that's it. Let me ask you something. Is this a business decision or is it personal? Because if it's business, I'll go away happily. But if it's personal, I'll go away. But I won't be happy. It's personal. <laughs> but the main, I mean, the main plot that I want to get into is Buster and his, you know, um, him being pushed onto Michael. Now, in the previous episode, Lucille had appealed for Michael to give Job something to do. Uh, which he did. He gave him a letter to post, which, of course, we know what happened to that letter. Yes. Um, now... In this episode, Buster was was not actually in the last episode. I'm to assume that he was still there was still some money that was paying for him to study, you know, cartography or whatever. Usually at this time of year, Buster would return to his postgraduate studies, but without the resources to afford it, his summer vacation was extending into the fall. He's he's interrupting the um, uh, I don't know what what are they called water aerobics that his his mother is is taking yeah. part in which which is the only time we see that pool at Balboa Towers I'm assuming that's where it is and so you know Lucille kind of out of annoyance rather than you know any kind of thought for what Buster should be doing she it, in fact actually it's quite funny because the uh, the opening scene with the cornballer where basically everyone who's living in the model home which at this point is still just the the Funkes, and Michael and George Michael, you know, they're all having fun. And when Lucille well, finds everybody... out about this... Going on bike rides, making cornholes, oh, everyone's fun. laughing and riding and cornholing except Buster. Everybody's laughing and riding and cornholing. <laughs> cornholing except, except Buster. Except Buster. Except <laughs> yeah. Buster. <laughs> yeah. And I love how she uses that excuse yeah. to force Buster onto Michael. It's like, everyone shouldn't be having fun without Buster. Um, and while, of course, while she's doing this, you know, Buster is um, he's chasing a bird around. Buster! It's a bird! I know it's a bird! I'm on the phone! It walked on my pillow! Look, it's a bird! It walked on my pillow! Which I loved at the, at the very end when, when, um, when Lucille says, she was like, sometimes those little birds don't fly back into your house. 
I thought it was a nice little <laughs> callback to it, like, sometimes they do, and Buster ends up destroying everything in the house. And the narrator <laughs> even says, you know, uh, Lucille realized perhaps it was time to let her own baby bird fly away. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I love that Michael is like, why do I have to take him? <laughs> Which is just... <laughs> I love the fact that all those scenes take place every time someone's talking about Buster and what an annoyance he is to take care of. He's always sitting right outside of shot. So they pan uh, yeah, back, and yeah. he's just like, oh. Hey, brother. <laughs> this is probably my favorite thing. They frame everything in tight two shots, so you just see the two people talking, and then they gradually reveal that Buster is there the whole time, and every single conversation <laughs> is about Buster. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, not to not to jump ahead to, early, to future episodes, but you can always tell a Milford man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I, I was going to say his ability to stay really quiet is is probably, you know, I mean, I don't know if they're setting that up here, but you got, on rewatch, you've got to feel they are. Um, what they did in this show that was so great is it was it was hard to tell what they set out to do and then what they eventually said, oh, we can thread this back in and it's all done so well that it just every joke hits like it's been set up since the beginning. Yeah, I I love the first reveal, though, where, you know, Michael says, can hang out at work, you know, but it's not going to be a day at the beach. And you pull back and you see that Buster is dressed up <laughs> for a day at the beach. He has, like, a pail, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. And I love, uh, of course, it's like, Mom, pack me a change of clothes, which, you know, that's, of course, that's what Buster would say. Yeah. Um, and and then, obviously, you know, when, when Michael takes him to a meeting, he's, like, yawning, and we kind of pull out to see him getting bored at this at the meeting and then michael you don't want to make the same mistake your mom made with buster yeah boy what happened there i really don't know Mm. maybe it was the 11 months he spent in the womb and the doctor said there were claw marks on the walls of her uterus but he was her miracle baby yeah and i i was just too burnt out on raising you guys to care so he turned out a little uh soft you know a little doughy I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was my fault. Maybe, uh, maybe I just ignored the guy. Just blowing right through nap time, aren't we? Wow, we're just blowing through nap time, aren't we? Well, my favorite time is that reveal at the prison where you know we we go back to George Senior and uh, you know he he apologizes for not being able to come out the day before. Oh yeah, that's that's. I'm sorry. I couldn't break away from the poker game. Capital G was down to his boxers. Strip poker? Yeah, and it's tough. We can really only play about two hands. Listen. A bit of George Sr.'s um, not being able to keep track of time while he's in prison, which becomes a bit of a running joke, where he's like, you know, I never see you anymore. And he's like, I was here yesterday. And it's just, and it's that kind of, it, I, just, I just love that he, he, you know, he has no, he has no idea like, of time uh, while he's in prison. Uh, and it should be noted that up until this point, you know, we've only really seen Michael visit George Sr. in prison. So Buster coming along, you know, for that wonderful reveal where George <laughs> where George Sr. is describing everything that's wrong with Buster. Uh, and we get a little hint at what would become, you know, a running joke in season two, which is Buster's paternity, where they say that he spent 11 months in the womb. Yeah. Um, there were claw marks <laughs> on the walls of her uterus. <laughs> And then, of course, we have um, we have a call back to the pilot where Buster is building the bike and Michael is in the middle of trying to say something and he does his quick pivot and he's like... And we're back on track. And we're focused. And Buster. 
You can't do that in the snack room, pal. You know, Buster giving all his kind of like, um, I, I don't know if you say weaknesses or um, like phobias or whatever it is, but it just seems like Lucille has basically told him not to go near anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mom told me to stay away from microwaves. microwave. He, he basically can't do anything. Um, and I think it's funny that, you know, Michael kind of encourages him to be more adventurous. And of course, you know, when he's filled, when he's finished building what he describes as the bitchiness bike, um, you know, they get, they, they kind of warm up and go for a ride. Um, Tony Hale himself, the actor, he is not known to swear. Um, it's, you know, uh, for some TV programs and most recently for the finale of Veep, which as this episode goes out, was a couple of months ago. Was excellent. Yeah, he, he <laughs> did let rip with a ton of swearing, which is something that he never actually did during the run of Arrested Development. And so when they bleep him, which, you know, in, in two in two occasions in this episode, he goes on quite long um, bleeping rants. Um, <laughs> Tony Hale is actually saying the alphabet um, as he's mm-hmm. instead of swearing. If you swearing, look at his mouth, you can yeah. see him say L-M-N-O-B. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, but I think it's funny that like Buster kind of starts picking up on some of the kind of tendencies of his his brother, um, and bec- and kind of being a because li- Michael is not an angry person, but he is known to get a little bit angry. So it's funny that some of that mm-hmm. kind of seeps into Buster. And he does he does get a little Michael does get a little sweary when he <laughs> gets upset or yeah. burns his arm. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, who yeah. who doesn't in that circumstance? <laughs> well, unless there's a small child around. <laughs> that doesn't even stop me then. <laughs> after after Buster has visited the prison and he's finished building the bike, Michael and um, Buster <laughs> they go on a bike ride. Which, of course, ends disastrously. And so we then get to the final part of this storyline where Buster and Michael um, and Lucille are kind of... They're sharing a moment. You were flying today, buddy. Yes, I was flying. But a little too close to the sun. You let him go in the sun? It's a sentimental moment that is immediately <laughs> stepped on by Lucille getting super you angry. let him go out in the sun. And then, and then at the end, where he's on top of the building at Balboa Towers, and he's literally closer to the sun than he has been here, the entire episode. Oh, oh! You know what we haven't we haven't talked about, which is a great running gag that kind of um, happens to each little character grouping here is zip me up. Zip me up. Yeah. You know, Job was disgusted by the idea of Lucille zipping, <laughs> zipping, uh, zipping her dress up. It was utterly macabre. Zip me up. And Buster, of course, is more than willing to do this, uh, which again will become mm-hmm. a running joke. But it happens a couple of times there, you know, it happens with Buster and then, and then before Buster and Michael go on the bike ride, Michael's backpack is unzipped, and he goes, "Hey, zip me up!" Yeah, zip me up! Yeah, to yeah. Buster. So it's like that relationship has sort of transferred from Lucille to Michael. And now in this final this final scene, we get a bit of Lucille where she she's found out through Lindsay that Buster has started to express opinions about his mother, and one of them is that she's she gets off on being withholding. Here's a candy bar. Oh, no, I'm withholding it. Look at me getting off. <laughs> Look at me getting off, she says, <laughs> which I just thought is such a funny joke. 
Um, but the best part of this is, as as you said earlier, you know, she talks about the little bird flying back into her house. And then we pull back and we see that this intimate moment between Michael and his brother and his mother was actually in the middle of a meeting. And one guy is like, um, so can we go now? And Michael is like, are, yeah. Are we done? Yeah. yeah. And this will become this will become something that I think, you know, the, the Bluth children are known for, apart from the oldest one, on, or not actually not the oldest, the middle one. Um, on middle, uh, yeah, yeah, are known for their laziness, and that seems to be something that is reflected in the Bluth company itself, where all the employees are constantly trying to find a way to go home early, <laughs> and uh, this is just one of the many the occasions where Michael is like, okay, just go. Like he can't be bothered to do a full <laughs> working day, even though he he himself is so committed to um, always working. Um, mm-hmm. Well, because actually going back with the bike, with Buster's working on the bike. Yeah. <laughs> um, he Michael looks at his watch and goes I guess 3.40 is as good a time as any to call it a day <laughs> and everyone leaves <laughs> yeah I think this is a good time now to go over the other main story which of course is you know driven as a lot of the subplots in this first season will be by <laughs> George Michael's forbidden love now it's I don't think it's until the next episode that we get that in Spanish um, you know, because we, we don't find out in this show that, that Marta's show is called El Amor Prohibido, but that is essentially what is going on here with George Michael and maybe. And as we'll find out somewhere at the end of season two, season three, um, between maybe and Steve Holt as well. Um, <laughs> in these first few episodes, David Cross is so good that it is crazy. Oh. Uh, starting with, yeah. he, 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 he always misinterprets people's actions and thinks that they're towards him um and we <laughs> and so he you know he he shows up um <laughs> he shows up at the play thinking that maybe is reaching out to him which of course is the opposite <laughs> of what george michael is doing with um with michael because michael thinks that his son is pulling away from him um and the narrator tells us in truth maybe was reaching out to a boy named steve holt who was auditioning for the lead in the school play the idea of steve holt (laughs) that character doing shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) is so absurd well here's what here's what i think about that so in high school when it came to casting shows uh my wife she said that at her high school, the drama teacher, what they would do is they would court, like, the football player or, like, the head cheerleader to be in the show and would give them one of the lead roles just to draw people in, just to get them yeah. to come and buy tickets. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, all See, the... See, it was very different in my high school. It would, as for me, too. But, like, I remember her yeah. telling me, like, that's what they would do. And then every show they would have, like, sold-out crowds because everybody wanted to come see Joe Football or Sally Cheerleader be in the show. <laughs> And so seeing that, that was where my mind went, where I was like, oh. And then when they show later that it's the football coach casting it, it was like, oh, yeah. that's why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we get this these quick little succession of at the auditions where everyone is obsessed with the kiss. And, you know, Steve Holt is like, I would kiss before I spoke. Maybe decided to audition as well, looking for a chance to get closer to Steve. Occasion to kiss. And then we actually get to kiss, right? And then I love how... Um, George Michael quietly says I would kiss before I spoke and then there's a kiss right the, the, he gets the instruction louder <laughs> louder and he doesn't he doesn't do the line louder he asks the question louder and then there's a kiss right and Michael Sarah times that so perfectly 
Um, you know, and then <laughs> the cast list, even though everyone is looking at, for, at their own parts, everyone is saying the same name, which of course is Steve Holt, and he finds out that he's the lead. Maybe finds maybe finds out that Steve Holt is the lead. Steve Holt! And George Michael finds out he's a stand-in. Stand-in for Steve Holt? Steve Holt! Obviously, this is not a joke that they're setting up here, but in latent seasons, you know, George Michael would love to be the stand-in for Steve Holt. And it turns out that, in a way, he kind of is. Um, <laughs> I think the entrance of Tobias... like he, First of all, Tobias kind of... Uh, wanting to puke on the head of the the football coach or the principal, whoever he's talking to, I think he's kind of over-the-top yeah. impassioned plea to do this thing that really none of the teachers want to do. They're just sort of forced to do it. And yet he feels the need to kind of strong-arm his way into this. And I think it's so funny. Um, uh, and the flowery, faux Shakespearean... <laughs> things he adds on to like punctuate that make no sense it's tobias's undue commitment to everything <laughs> that he brings to everything in the show that he's just so passionate in and but yet so completely oblivious at the same time <laughs> well he's he's oblivious to the insult that coach jerry throws at him where he's like sure let the mm-hmm. little fruit do it yeah um <laughs> which... he says yeah, which I think is, you know, is, is quite funny. Um, now, of course, maybe is angry that her father is there because, of course, she is rebellious and she's trying to rebel constantly. So the fact that her father would decide to become the director. Um, I love his introduction, though, how he's like right behind her and whispering. And he's like, I know why you're doing this. I know why you're And, you know, oh. the way he... I mean, this is the first occurrence of his cat-like abilities, but the way David Cross like bumps into the stage and rolls up and then pops oh. up onto it as he's introducing himself as Dr. Tobias Funke, you're new, and then as he pops up, he's director. Um, director. <laughs> David Cross's physicality in this role is so phenomenal. Everything is so, so perfect and so strange. like once we get into the rehearsals where they're about to kiss um because obviously it's funny because george michael goes through this little this thing about how he's gonna quit i actually think i'm gonna quit yeah theater's dead but you know it's gonna be a football practice so i'm gonna have to kiss the stand-in quit when maber tells him that steve holt's not actually going to be available (laughs) because he's doing football but no no i love the theater and i gave my word so I'm back in. His attempts to try and get a kiss from his cousin, it's, you know, kind of the tortuous... I think Michael Sarah just really kind of pulls it off really well. But then we get Tobias with what is probably my favourite line in this episode. You are playing adult. With fully... Pick that up, please. With fully formed libidos, not two young men playing grab ass in the shower. <laughs> Well, that and that's another, you know, ongoing thing is what is happening with Tobias's sexuality. Well, I think everybody except Tobias knows <laughs> what's going on with Tobias's sexuality. Because <laughs> right. later on, it becomes a bit more broad in terms of the way the joke is played. But here, it's kind of a, a, a I mean, that that is kind of like the most obvious line. Um, you know, the, the switching <laughs> genders thing just kind of plays into him trying to be 
Shakespearean, which obviously he, he gives us a, a fact as if nobody knew that the women were played by men in Shakespearean times. And two kids run out <laughs> when he yeah. mentions that. <laughs> yeah, that is a great like kind of reaction. Um, but yeah, it's like, um, and again, of course, um, Tobias is like, He thinks a Cupid I shall play. His constant like kind of talking to himself in these weird ways. Continues and his his sudden appetite for the pencil after that too. <laughs> oh yeah, hmm. Hmm. yeah. Hmm. <laughs> such a such a great like kind of prop work that he's doing. So perfectly strange. Well, Tobias yeah. mis misreads why George Michael is in the play, um, not realizing that he you know just wants to kiss his cousin with the impunity of it being you know during a play. And Tobias once again announces that I know why you're in the play to George Michael, which George Michael says, what? Because, of course, he thinks he's being rumbled about what's going on with him and maybe. But instead, <laughs> instead, Tobias, you know, he says, George Michael, you know, Steve's lines. And of course, George Michael kind of gives a half puzzled sort of. And he's like, you're my Benedict. And then, of course, we get the wonderful, you know, and Stephen Holt. Where is Stephen Holt? And, of course, Steve Holt. <laughs> I think it's funny because there's a little delay because he doesn't actually announce himself because I guess he's not used to hearing Stephen. But he says Steve Holt. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> this is when he enthusiastically decides to be uh, Beatrice. <laughs> Beatrice! <laughs> and then George Michael is about to kiss his rival. Um, and Tobias is thinking that some sparks will now fly. And of, of course, the funny thing is that this this story kind of wraps up by having, uh, I mean, Tobias, of course, is, is expressing his anger about, you know, how, um, you know, Steve Holt doesn't know what, what <laughs> he doesn't know what her problem is. And he finds the, the dress in the attic. Her? Yeah. He, find, he finds the, this dress in the attic that Lindsay has bought, which is just a mere kind of footnote in the finished episode. Um, but before, it did actually have a larger story. It, the cutscene, actually, for this episode, I had never seen it before up until a couple of days ago when I went back and watched it, and it kind of... It's one of the things I loved about this show is how far they'll go for such a tiny joke. Like, they went through, like, a full 30-second scene of, like, setting up an LLC and selling it and s selling it to a shop, and then setting up trustees, all this, so she didn't have to do any work. And... <laughs> The just that all that for the for the little nothing joke and like I can see why it got cut, but I totally love the level that they'll go to just for that. Mm -hmm. And then at the end with him finding it uh, or, or Tobias buying it at the same shop <laughs> is just great. Yeah. And that that dress and it doesn't get a whole lot of time on like you said, it doesn't really get a whole lot of time on the screen, but I love how they show her spraying herself with the perfume while she's just like giving herself compliments in the mirror to have it then come back at the end of like, look at you. I yeah, am. <laughs> I know. And to, to then at the end where maybe it's like, you smell like my mom. Like, yeah, it's like the, the level the whole way through. For I was going to say Tobias finds his perfect wardrobe for his leading man, which of course is the red dress that is in the attic crawl space. Lindsay attempts to get more money from Lucille who, unusually tells her to get a job which is weird because like in later episodes i know this will be a thing between Lindsay and lucille where she um you know she constantly makes fun of the fact that that Lindsay has no job but lucille also has no job and also is as bad as Lin <laughs> like you know where Lindsay gets this from because lucille does the exact same thing um you know and that's kind of where the, the two stories kind of intersect with um 
Buster, you know, his his whole thing about being withholding is is then, you know, told to Lucille at that point. But then we get to kind of the conclusion of the whole thing with the play, which is because Tobias has recast all the roles, everybody starts quitting and then (laughs) then maybe ends up playing the man and Steve Holt ends up playing the woman. So in the end, maybe does get to kiss Steve Holt, but with the roles reversed. And then we get, I mean, this is probably the only time that this is kind of made explicit other than than the line that was in the pilot about Tobias, which is where George Michael says, I quit the play. I don't really enjoy plays. And also your dad thinks I'm gay and maybe says, oh, he thinks everyone's gay. Mm -hmm. Generally, of course, everyone thinks Tobias is gay. So... Uh, and that, of course, you know, is the is the running joke for the rest of the series. But this is one of the very few times in the show where they actually kind of go to the trouble of saying that anyone is gay or anyone thinks anyone is gay. <laughs> and so, you know, once once maybe gets her kiss, she is, of course, repulsed because <laughs> Steve Holt now smells like her mother, uh, which I think is like a really good kind of like finish to that storyline, um, you know, because... I don't think it's realistic that we were ever going to see um, Shakespeare as performed by Steve Holton, maybe, because neither of them has the commitment, <laughs> no. I think. I, saying that, Steve Holt, I think, probably could learn the lines and probably could commit to it. But I think once maybe he's got her kiss, um, or at least she realises that the kiss is not the thing that, that's worth the trouble, she probably would quit the next day anyway. I also love the idea that I don't know how much time has actually passed, but I can't imagine these kids memorizing no that much in that little amount of time (laughs) and in fact we see them with scripts every time except for that except for the like like the last yeah kiss part it's gonna be a huge disaster i'll get you tickets i was gonna say and from looking at stuff i i found this tidbit online and i thought it was interesting is that they're not even the so the play is marketed as much as much ado about nothing but the, the lines line they're that they reading keep saying from, is from As You Like It. Yeah. <laughs> Star wipe. This is a very educational episode. <laughs> I know. Welcome to a very special episode of I Made a Huge Mistake. Now, here's, here, here's the thing. I think the episode actually gives us kind of an indication of the time, which is when we wrap up at the end, um, I think we're back to Sunday. I think we start with Sunday when the, the foot, like at the beginning of the episode with the cornballer. And then we get to the end where we get this exchange with George Michael and Michael. And I get the feeling it's, you know, it's another Sunday and we've kind of, we've gone through a week and they've kind of ended up back where they were. A week. Yeah. (laughs) So they've staged a full Shakespearean production in one week. Well, I... Well, I mean, that's how I normally do it. I was going to... I don't know what what you guys do. I mean, when I have to put on a Shakespeare play, (laughs) it takes me, I mean, 48 hours if I'm busy. Now, here's the thing. I I know what you're referring to, which which we'll get to in a little second, because that's that's actually contained in the On The Next. I think that review comes from later on. I don't think that review happens within the same week. I think that Tobias had Mm. to recast everyone after this, and he stays on as the director because obviously he would. But I think that the review that he gets is is actually from not with contained within this week. The future, yeah. which is what the the that's what the on the next part is for. It's for stuff that's going to happen in the future. Rain on my parade a little well, bit. <laughs> so we get we get to the the final scene, which you know, as with Arrested Development, they will do this quite often, which is they'll finish with a touching scene between a father and a son, which gets undercut with um, <laughs> Michael once again. <laughs> burning himself on the cornball. And this is where we get the wonderful line where, you know, George Michael says, Yeah, but Dad, you're like the most important part of my life. And Michael says, That's a little cornball. 
And of course, that's as we're looking at a little tiny cornball that George Michael is making. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I just love that. And I, I, I mean, I've said this in the previous two episodes, but I'll say it again. I just love Michael Sarah and Jason Bateman as father and son. I think they work so well together. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, you get, you get the impression that they have known each other, you know, for 15 years when, you know, at this point they probably known each other for a fortnight. Um, but yeah, so I well, I feel like this show, this show is Michael Sarah at peak Michael Sarah, where he kind of like just hits the, the character that he normally plays. I feel like he plays perfectly in this show. Yeah, and every other time I've seen him do something where he's doing something similar, I'm always using Arrested Development as the benchmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we get to on the next, and in that section <laughs> we get Tobias getting a review of his play. I didn't get in this business to please sophomore Tracy Schwartzman, so. Onward and upward. Fly, Tracy! Fly! And then we see him in the shower crying, which is a callback to the previous episode. Um, and I don't think you can see them in this episode, but you definitely could in the last. But he's in his, um, his cut-offs while he's crying in the his shower. His cut-offs. Um, and then, of course, Buster winds up, like the bird that got into the house uh, that he was chasing earlier, he winds up on a roof. Uh, and he's yelling at his mom and he can't get down. Um, and yeah. that's where the episode ends. But, like, it is so... I just... I love that, it like, the both of the main storylines are tied up in the little on the next just perfectly. Like, you mm-hmm. know, the idea that Tobias would continue on with the play, of course, fits with his personality and his ego. And, you know, of course, Buster would be useless, even though he's back with his mother and, and still bothering her. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, what do you guys think of this episode? I'm, I'm going to say, uh, Alison? I, I mean, really, I love every episode of Arrested Development. I especially, particularly the characters of Tobias and Buster. So this is uh, one of my favorites. Just they get so much time um, when a lot of times they get kind of relegated to the background. Uh, so this is this is a favorite of mine. I definitely love this episode, not only having seen the entire series multiple times, it's a great episode, it's also a great episode to just show somebody who's never seen it, because you don't need to know a lot about the world of Arrested Development to still find this to be a funny episode. For sometimes you try and show people, sometimes you try and show people something and you have to explain it or you have to kind of give them context, and this episode really does stand on its own as a great episode where everything's kind of self-contained, it kind of starts and finishes itself. So, I like it for that reason. Um, On the next episode of I've Made a Huge Mistake, my guests will be Noah McMullen and Stephanie Stone-Rob, and we'll be talking about uh, episode four, um, which is, of course, Key Decisions, uh, which we we get into the um, <laughs> the wonderful world of, uh, of daytime uh, Spanish-language soap operas. Um, now, uh, do you have any plugs? Um, I'm going to start with Matt. I'm actually part of a sketch comedy group here in Pittsburgh called the, called the Harvey Wallbangers. So if anyone's near Pittsburgh and wants to come see us perform, uh, you can like us on Facebook. That's all I got. Okay. And Allison? Uh, I am a part of, it's become sort of a little family of podcasts um, called the Front Row Movie Reviews. Um, we've got a few different things. We do uh, classics. We do some flashback 80s and 90s films, as well as um, reviews of current, you know, currently playing films. 
Uh, and our whole thing is that it's the podcast for people who actually like movies. So we usually say nice things. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. It's me and a bunch of dudes. Okay. Being goofballs. <laughs> Um, so, um, that is the end of this episode. So I'm going to say goodbye and I'm going to say goodbye to Mac. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you very much for having me. And goodbye, Alison. Goodbye. Bye.